Today, we get to chat with the very talented Margaret Brown. Along with being a brilliant director, she's also quite the character. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. She earned her BA from Brown in creative writing and her MFA in film from NYU. Brown's first documentary feature was Be Here to Love Me, a film about Towns Van Sant, which chronicles the turbulent life of American singer-songwriter Towns Van Sant. She subsequently directed the documentary film The Order of Myths, a 2008 Sundance Film Festival selection about the segregated Mardi Gras celebrations of Mobile, Alabama. In 2014, Brown directed the documentary The Great Invisible, which is a film on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig explosion as seen through the eyes of oil executives, survivors, and Gulf Coast residents who experienced it firsthand and then were left to pick up the pieces while the world moved on. It won the South by Southwest Grand Jury Prize for Documentary and received an Emmy nomination for Exceptional Merit in Documentary Filmmaking. Brown's latest documentary film, Descendant, follows members of Africatown, a small community in Alabama, as they share their personal stories and community history as descendants of the Clotilda, the last known slave ship to illegally transport human beings as cargo from Africa to America. The ship's existence, a centuries-old open secret, is confirmed by a team of marine archaeologists. The film was shortlisted for the 2023 Academy Awards, and you can watch it now on Netflix. By the way, the film currently has a perfect 100% critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. Descendant is a powerful documentary that tackles dark truths about our nation's past, about rewriting history, and what it means to be a descendant. How understanding where you came from, your ancestors, your family, your community, your identity, and help you hopefully begin to heal and understand who you are today. Representation and equity are terms and topics of conversations that may feel foreign to some. It's hard to fathom the struggles of others unless you've personally experienced it yourself. But that's the beauty of documentary films. When done as masterfully as Descendant, a director can pull you into those experiences, into these communities, these lives, and help you see and feel what it's like to be someone else just for a moment. They can change us forever, giving us new perspectives and knowledge. They can make the world a better place by teaching us the ability to understand and share the experiences and feelings of another person. Empathy. They're so important. So let's jump into the conversation and learn more about Descendant from Margaret Brown herself. I'm in New York. I live in Texas, but yeah. What brought you to Austin? I was curious. Um, well, gosh, um... When I graduated college, um, I had a lot of friends that lived there and I was just like couch surfing there. And I remember my best friend and I, we walked into this like punk club, like rock club one night. And we were just like, we knew like everyone there and we were just like, we're going to stay here. So that's it. Yeah, that's it. And I've sort of like moved um, New York. I mean, I have a place in L.A. too. But um, but it's always like sublet with other like doc filmmakers, which it is right now. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've seen the film Fire of Love, but like the producer's cousin is staying there now. So it's like keep it in the family. You know? I love that. And uh, but you grew up you grew up in Alabama. Yeah, no, I'm from Alabama. Yeah. And, and that's the reason like Texas, you know, because like um, I wanted to be somewhere liberal, but also the South and. Austin and my stories are about the South, you know, and Austin and also like I'm from a music family and my dad, my dad's a musician. Austin's a music town, like everything about it just kind of fit, you know? Yeah. I think you have, you kind of have to have that in your soul. Uh, Were you born and raised in Mobile? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from Mobile. 
and you said your dad was a musician. Was he? Did he? Did you grow up with him playing? Did he play gigs, or was he like a like playing in his house in the house? We had a studio in our house um, growing up until like a hurricane destroyed it. But um, but yeah, my dad um, my dad is a country, mostly country songwriter, some pop ish stuff, but mostly country. And um, yeah, so I grew up like completely surrounded by musicians, like coming over all the time and recording and. Um, and going to Nashville and L.A. with my dad. And um, yeah, I was definitely like a daddy's girl like that. Definitely. Because like no one else in Mobile, Alabama's dad was like my dad. You know, he was a freak. And um, and so, I mean, I'm sure there were, but I didn't know them. But so, yeah, I kind of like 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 really admired his his expressions of creativity. And he really had to break away like I didn't really have to break away for that but like my dad really did you know mm -hmm. i can imagine and that growing up in a storytelling household it sounds like now uh, it starts to make sense and uh after they're watching descendant uh one of the things i was going to talk to you about later on was just the all the music cues were just exceptional um and i could tell like there was it's a big part of who you are um what sort of things did along the way did you pick up from your dad as far as storytelling well i remember in fifth grade um we had this isn't really well uh, so my dad I mean maybe this is part of my pathology and not my creativity but I remember um my dad would get these like writing assignments like he was part of a songwriting duo and he wrote the words and his partner wrote the music and he had this producer snuff Garrett who would call sometime and say I need a song by tomorrow morning here's the hook you know and I remember like my, one of my first memories of childhood is like my dad had a lamp by his bedside on his side of the bed and like he would knock the lamp over when he had an idea. He was like trying to write it down in the middle of the night. So I would hear like the crash of the lamp and I would be like, oh, shit, like he must have gotten a story, of you know, I love that. And I mean, what a into growing up a household where stories are being uh created so quickly really kind of frames uh i think oftentimes people think a story takes a long time to create and yeah you learn that it's oh you can do it very quickly and see the the method the madness well, i don't know if i thought that as much as my other memory that i was going to tell you was my dad like they were like dress up like what you want to be and i went to school with all my clothes inside out in fifth grade because i was like i want to be a writer because my dad it was so like, you know, he was such a disaster, you know, and I was like, oh, I guess that's what it is to be a writer is just to be a mess. I love that. So that was my next question was, what did you want to be when you grew up? So did you wanted to be a writer? I think in fifth grade. Yeah. I mean, I really idolized my dad and but I also like wanted to be a jockey, but I was like immediately too tall. Like I wanted to be a jockey in the Kentucky Derby because I really liked horses when I was little. <laughs> But like by the age of like 12, I was like gigantic. So there was I knew that was the career that that career path was taken or not for me. Do you still ride? No, I don't. Um, uh, I don't ride. I wish. I mean, I just like also like as a kid, like it's really expensive to own a horse. And I remember like that was sort of out of the budget. But I like to pet the horses a lot. And yeah, I, I did ride when I was little, but then I switched to a different sport. So. You earned your BA from Brown and earned your MFA in film from NYU. Impressive and bravo. When you look back at those experiences, like what was your biggest takeaway? What is something that as a director, as a filmmaker, a storyteller now, 
you look at you really something that you learned at, at, during those those times it's so funny like i we had like a screening at moma a few weeks ago and my friend rodney like came to the screening and i went rodney evans he's a filmmaker as well and we went to brown together and he reminded me of how like he because the uh, brown apparently has all of our films like in a vault he said he was like yeah like your film is like next to todd haynes's like student film and i was like what and um and and he said um you know they're all and he reminded me of this film i made <laughs> called katrina 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 which i hadn't thought about in like a really long time <laughs> And we we used to all like just like stay up all night and edit together. And it was really fun and collaborative. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm still so close to so many people I know from both Brown and and NYU film school. Um, Brown was much more collaborative, though. I remember when I went to NYU, it was like, oh, like we're all in auteur and training, you know, and that made it like really competitive. But but the Brown film thing was isn't that way at all like we're all helping each other and staying up all night and getting really like stinky and like you know going to louis in the morning like not having slept for coffee and like you know very greasy eggs and that was sort of where i fell in love with film i think because of that collaborative spirit that's incredible do you think that um that was like, I mean, I think that's what the, the big benefit of being able to have that experience is that network and the, your, your, your community, I guess, more than actually like, obviously you learn things from professors, but really you learned, it seems like you learned a lot from your community. I mean, the fact that those, those bonds are still there, you know, and, um, I don't know, it was, it, it like that just didn't, it hasn't ever gone away. Like that sort of forge, I guess. And, um, and um, but I mean, it's kind of when you ask that question, I think it's so many things. It's definitely not just the community. It's also like, um, Leslie Thornton was my teacher and she's an experimental filmmaker, um, more in the narrative vein. And she just really encouraged us like, you know, three point lighting is bullshit and drop the camera out the window and see what you get. And just like a spirit of experimentation that really felt like um, when I went to NYU, you know, um, that stuff was taught to us and I had never learned it before. And um, and I'm glad I have it like that. Obviously, like knowing how to light something is clearly really important. Um, but I think to start in a place of questions rather than like, this is how you do it, it is a valuable and because and, it's also a lot less fear. I mean, I think as a younger filmmaker, I was very like filled with fear that I was going to somehow do it wrong. And I would like stay up all night before a shoot, like terrified that I was somehow going to fuck up. And I don't have that fear anymore. And I feel like that's really loosened up my creativity um, to like really play when I'm collaborating with like my DP and the editor and the, you know, just whoever is, is in the field with me and, or in the edit room and, or, you know, writing, I, I feel just very free now, finally. And that's, it took a lot, it took a many years to get to that sense of freedom and um, experimentation. But yeah, if I was to go back to my younger self, I would say, don't be so scared. There's a confidence when the fear goes away that you have. And yeah. I think that with Descendant, you have oh. such a clear point of view and the abstract shots that are throughout it that help 
piece it together and help you feel like you're in that room in a, in a, in a way that I haven't experienced oftentimes verite filmmaking is, you know, oh, it's handheld. Yeah, but it's not. You have these shots that are like shot straight up from the floor to the ceiling. Yeah. That gets <laughs> really, really cool. And it's things I haven't seen before. So uh, I was, I was so curious about that. Um, how did this, how did this story come to, how did Descendant come to you? What, uh, growing up in Mobile, it seems like, you know, it's tethered to who you are, but yeah. what, what was the initial idea? Well, um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but I made a film 16 years ago called The Order of Myths. And um, that's how I first heard about the Clotilda because my, I mean, this is my memory, right? And I'm actually making another project now about memory. And I know that memory is sometimes deeply false. So now I'm always like, well, it's my memory, but maybe this memory is wrong. <laughs> but um, that's a total aside. But um, but uh, the way I remember it is um, when I grew up in Mobile, um, I went to public school for elementary private for middle and public for high school. And I never remember in any of those settings studying the Clotilda. We had a whole year of Alabama history um, that I can recall and maybe even two. And um, and it, I don't remember it at all. And so when my mom told me when we were shooting, she said, you know, I think you need to know that the queen this year, Helen Mayer, her family brought the last slave ship to the United States. And and she just felt like I needed to know that, you know, and I I kind of clocked it. I was kind of like, OK, because my store, my film was about Mardi Gras. And I thought when we started, I was like, it's probably going to be about the fact that Mardi Gras is segregated, at least in part. But I mean, you know, a film tells you what it is. So I was pretty open. And so I took in the fact of that, um, you know, Clotilda, like, OK, sh but it wasn't until after Mardi Gras was over, when we were filming with Stephanie Lucas, who's the black Mardi Gras queen, we were filming with her grandparents and her at their kitchen table. And, um, and, and her grandfather just kind of says it's in the film. I mean, we what we filmed with the first, the moment I found out about it is in the order of myths. He says, Oh, like, like, um, Oh, you know, we're from that ship and and stephanie says yeah my people are from her people's ship and we realized in that moment that like these two queens were connected through the clotilda and um it was like one of those moments where the whole ground like i looked at the cinematographer and we were just we didn't even say anything to each other i looked at him and he looked at me and i could tell he was thinking what i was thinking was like oh now we have a movie you know that's incredible how kids it. And so, I mean, they're so connected, uh, the, the stories. And I think, yeah. and I think being, um, the storyteller you are that, you know, I often believe that, uh, the stories are within us and then are the communities that we grew up in and we're a reflection of those things. And so it seems like yeah. there's a through line to everything you're saying. And now, uh, even your entire body of work makes so much sense to me. Um, and that includes from like, be here to love me to descend in. Yeah. Um, you've tackled things that, don't necessarily have a complete story, which I think is really ambitious for a documentary filmmaker. Cause oftentimes there is a story that you can go research and outline before you even go start shooting. But in your, in these instances, you're almost like an investigative journalist. You're, you're having to go find out what are the facts, capture them yeah. and, and then figure out, um, how, not only how they end, because in, in these cases, they don't necessarily end they're they're, they're going to oh. keep continuing going forever. So when you approach these stories, you know, how do you 
begin outlining and research something like this? Um, well, it sort of depends on what it is. Like, I mean, I'm kind of driven by passion and what interests me. And so I just start like, you know, with, with, with descendant, um, I mean, everyone is so different. Like with order of myths, we just started filming. Um, and I actually, at the beginning of order of myths, it was supposed to be a feature. I thought it was going to be a narrative feature about my mom, who was like this sort of runaway Mardi Gras queen who married a Jew and like sort of rejected everything. But then when I was in mobile filming, um, I, 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 to do research, it was a research trip and I was filming and the, the the way that the camera saw something that the people who were like the camera saw truth and what people were saying, they didn't see that truth. And like, I think that's like sort of documentary gold when the people on screen don't understand what they're saying, but the audience does. And so I was like, oh, this is a documentary. I can't make this up. So I went back to my funder and I was like, hey, this is not a this is not a narrative film like I can't write these lines like I think we should make a doc so that's sort of you know you really have to have to listen oh my god I don't know why someone's no one even knows I'm in this room can you hold on for a second oh, sorry let me put them absolutely I'm so sorry that no was a problem you had to give me a secret network for the hotel and and it was like a whole thing <laughs> Well, I'm glad it worked out. I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. Okay. But here we are. Um, yeah. And I also, we want to be mindful of your time. Do you have a hard out in 30? Is that about right? Um, I I don't have a hard out, but I do have to like finish watching all the Academy movies today. So I, I like have to do my due diligence yeah, Academy member. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I, uh, I think that's important. Um, okay, so yeah. I'll be mindful of that. So yeah, we I think what the last question we were talking about is a little bit about ultimately how the story came to you. Yeah. Uh, we got through that. And then kind of your approach to, um, when you approach a story like this, where it doesn't have a clear ending or a clear narrative that yeah. you, how do you outline in your head or how do you approach a story like that as you go in as a filmmaker, as a director? I just try to be open. I try to be open to what the story tells me because, um, and sometimes it's hard, you know, because when I started this film, I thought um, I had this access or so I thought to the mayor family that I didn't end up having. So that was like a really a hard pivot, you know, because I thought, oh, like all these white families are going to talk to me about, you know, what it means to be white in this situation. And I thought from the order of myths that I would have some, you know, because I'm from there. I know a lot of white people in Mobile. Mm -hmm. I thought the white families would talk to me and no one really would. The only person who spoke really was Herndon Inge, who's sort of from that sort of upper middle class or just upper class part of like Mobile, but he's like a, a liberal man and, you know, has thought about this a lot, has thought about his family's connection to slavery and has sort of done some of the work. And um, and I, I, I guess um, I, I shouldn't have been surprised, but I was surprised that more people wouldn't speak to me, that there was just a sort of like silence. Um, which now has been broken now that the movie has come out. But but yeah, so I thought I had this sort of, maybe it's a laziness, but I thought, oh, this will have a similarity to The Order of Myths, but it ended up being a totally different kind of movie. And I and I think one thing that also shaped me early on was when I read Barracoon and I got like obsessed with Zora Neale Hurston and started reading about her and like really like, I don't want to say channeling her because that sounds obnoxious, but I, I did did feel this like sort of 
connection to her as a female Southern storyteller and what it's like to sort of be of but not of a place like, you know, she's from Eatonville, but she Florida, but she sort of left and went to the north and came back. And sometimes people treated her like an outsider and sometimes they didn't. And she was sort of like an insider outsider. And I've sort of always felt that way as an insider outsider. Um, I mean, certainly not before the age of 18, but even then, like being half Jewish, I sort of felt a little other, you know, Mm -hmm. um, to like the sort of like white hegemony of Mobile. Um, yeah, like I, I think like that deep connection, I realized really, really early on that she somehow would have to be woven in and that her words and, and sort of the doubling back from history of, that seems still so present of her interviews with Kujo Lewis and, and then his words from even living in Africa as a child, like that kind of like, it's almost like this kind of like time travel, you know? And so I knew I wanted that kind of time travel feel to be in the, to be in the project. You know, earlier you mentioned the Order of Myths in 2008 when the I looked it up while we were in in, in pause for a second. Yeah. But in 2008, yeah, yeah. So that's that was 15 years ago that this story comes to you. So in your mind, this is something you've been working on for 15 years, correct? 16, really, because it came out in 2008. But I made it in 2007. Yeah. Um, not that year makes that much of a difference, but it was the 2007 Mardi Gras that we filmed. Wow. Um, yeah. And do you? And from that point. As you're sitting with it, you start reading, you start doing some research, you start putting together the pieces, and then as you go into production, actually start making this documentary. Yeah. Is the idea in your mind that you just go set up some interviews and start hearing some of the folklore, the, the word of mouth stories, is that the idea? Or do you did you already have a kind of a, a direction at that point? Well, I like really complicated stories. So I started filming on all these different levels. Like we started filming stuff verite, like we started filming meetings like immediately. Um, the first thing we filmed was a verite scene. It was not a, it was not an interview. Mm. We didn't do interviews for a while, kind wow. of. And then um, one of the first things, um, I mean, we did some interviews in the first shooting round, but the very first thing we filmed was a meeting. Um, um, I don't know if you know the filmmaker Bill Ross, um, but I couldn't, you know, the Ross brothers in New Orleans. Yeah. Anyway, oh, they're yes. great storytellers too. Yeah. So Bill, like... Um, I couldn't get there soon enough. So I called Bill and was like, hey, can you go to Mobile today and just film this for me? And he did. Um, pretty and, sweet second unit. <laughs> yeah, I know. Pretty pretty talented. Set yeah. Um, so he and this, like, uh, you know, because like, um, you know, there's not that many of us like Southern dot people. So, yeah, we, we have to stick together. But um, so Bill came down and, and um and he shot the first day. I couldn't get there quick enough from L.A. And um, and that was when they thought they, they'd found the Clotilda, but it turned out to be the wrong ship. Hmm. Uh, so he, I, I couldn't get there quick enough. The meeting was happening. So he shot that first. And then I kind of came down, I think, the next day or something and started filming with, like, a very small development crew. But one of the first things we shot was the scene with M. When we were still in development, we shot the scene with Emmett in the Oakley Mansion, which is like a former plantation home. Wow. And, um, you know, which is a museum now, which is like in the South. Like, like, why do we, why are, why are these like places lionized? They're like basically torture sites, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, so, um, but that was something we filmed like really, really early. Cause I kind of knew I wanted to like Zora to be like, have, have descendants reading Zora throughout. Wow. I, what's really funny is that like, I always try to piece these things 
back together. And I, assume, I in my mind, I, like I thought that was maybe like the, some of the last stuff is that you picked up these shots. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> I love that. It's like you're painting a picture. You start painting and putting oil down, and yeah, you're well, doing I the narrative. Well, I just knew. I knew, like I, I um, you know, and 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 there was a lot of actually like pushback. Like a lot of my producers did not understand how the Zora would fit in. And um, I don't know if you've heard of a woman named Diane Wireman. She um, was like the leading light at participant. She died last year. Oh, and she yes. was my, yeah, so she sad. was my mentor and like collaborator and just, you know, producer, executive producer, executive. And we we're really close. And she didn't quite get what I was doing. But she was like, but I trust you anyway. We'll like give you the money. Just keep going. And I just like, I don't think there's many executives that are like that, that, that like are like, that usually they're like, no, I don't get it. Like you, we want, we, no, you can't that money. Cause sometimes you've sort of figured out as you're going and you're like, I need money to do this. And they're like, we don't see that. Sorry. Yeah. And you either have to lie and pull it from somewhere else or you have to just forget that idea. But she had enough like, foresight to be like well I don't get it yet but I trust you and like use the money for that anyway and I just feel like I hope because she's gone now and she is missed in the documentary community and I just feel like like to make like really good art like we need people who might might not understand us but still let you do it anyway because like that's like sort of what makes this story the documentary different and not like a straight up like verite I mean the story's amazing regardless right Mm -hmm. but like um you know the part i think one of the things that sets it apart is that it does have this this element that's not strict documentary you know that really does transport you through time mhm 100% and it's uh i loved your in memory card for her at the, uh, before the titles or for the end credits i thought that was very sweet i'm glad that you're right and people need to champion those the the artistic approach to all sorts of film sometimes you can't understand you can't explain it in words like the reason I started making films was because I couldn't explain everything I wanted to in language. Like you have to try it. You have to yeah. like shoot it, you know? Anyway. Yeah. And and all those pieces came together so beautifully. I loved, I mean, the scenes, I loved all uh, the gentleman. I don't know what instrument he was playing. It sounded like a banjo, but it wasn't uh, down the street. And it was kind of at dusk and it was so beautiful. I, I loved all the show. Well, I can't, I haven't had enough coffee yet. Fuck. What is the name of it? Um, I'm going to figure out, hold on. I don't. I can't believe I can't remember the name of it. It's in the credits. So beautiful. Slopolian Williams. He makes those instruments himself. I'm gonna need one. Yeah, <laughs> they're so beautiful. He'll I, make I love him this. Want. Do you want one? Seriously, he'll. Oh, 100. I'm gonna reach out and order I'll one. I just send it to you. Um. Well, anyway, I, I'm gonna figure out for you yes. like what it's. And it's yeah, embarrassing. It in- to remember the name. You know, it's early on Monday um, and no. we'll put it in the in the show notes. Um, yeah. No, that's it's incredible. I love that scene so much. And then and then the shots. I mean, obviously, the the stuff inside the homes of the families and um, I, I loved all of that. Ven- uh, Vernetta cooking in the kitchen. I, it was I could smell the food. Have you seen what Steve even Satterfield did? Like he did a whole sh- little show around. Oh, him. yeah. Yeah. I watched all those. They're beautiful. Um, yeah, it's, I loved all that element. I love all the elements that you wove together, the access, um, that you had the archival footage, um, were you just so elated when you're able to use the, some of that stuff? I mean, um, you mean the, the Zora Neale Hurston footage that yeah. she got? 
Yeah, some of it I knew about like since the beginning. So it's like on the YouTube, but some of it we got like very, very toward the end. And we were like, wow, like um, and it worked its way into like the very end of the film with the kid looking straight at the camera. Yeah, um, that's beautiful. Yeah, like I yeah, like I mean, she was such a good cinematographer. It's wild. And um and um yeah, like it's it's really it was really a gift. Sorry, I'm like I'm like a little bit like distracted because I'm I'm texting everyone to be like, what the fuck is that instrument called? <laughs> no, I love it. You know, yeah, her footage. Uh, honestly, when I first saw, it, I'm like, oh, that's cool that you recreated this footage because the composition and the all of it was so mo- I would say modern for lack of a better term, but it was. I thought you recreated it, and then I was like, oh, this is actually the footage. Like that's un- it's insane. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Absolutely. I think, you know, I said this a little bit earlier, I think we're inherently tied, our souls are tied to stories. And I think that we're constantly trying to figure out how to get that, our soul out there into the world. Um, As it relates to this particular story of Descendant, what in your soul resonates in this? How does, how do I see my soul? You should have never asked me because now like I'm asking like everyone I know, it's called an accounting, but I don't think that's what it is. It's not an accounting, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, I love it. Now no, I'm like distracting because I'm texting like Kern and Ray the <laughs> Mike the editor because like you know um yeah oh my God Ray just texted me back I'm not sure it's the name it's his own creation but Mike will know because Mike is um Mike is my editor my, I have two editors but Mike finished the film with me and he's also a musician he's he's in that band the War on Drugs I don't know if you oh, know yeah. that band yes yeah he played are in that band how funny and, um, our paths crossed very briefly in vancouver <laughs> really yeah well yeah. He, actually, he couldn't go on tour with them because he got he got um he got covid when we were in post-production with from the sound designer <laughs> so oh no go on tour. well our other composer rhiannon giddens um do you know her work like no. so she she's amazing and um you should definitely check her out. Like Ray and Rhiannon were the two main composers and this guy named Dirk Powell also did some stuff with Rhiannon. Um, but Ray, I was mostly in the studio with and Rhiannon, like um, in the film, like the very, like I think in the first 10 minutes, it's mostly Rhiannon. There's some Ray, but like um, she's basically playing. It's not even, it's like a proto banjo hmm. from 1860. Oh, like wow. that she would we would be on YouTube if she was in Ireland and she would just pick it up and like play along to the movie and I'd be like ah when you listen to her music you'll understand like she's she's like definitely channeling from another place yeah oh and and that's the I mean this add this whole section of the score in the film because it it um you use a variety of sounds you use classical music you use the banjo you use uh, African sounds to kind of like throughout it and uh, so it makes sense that there's so many thoughtful people involved uh, that you're yeah. the maestro helping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, like I, there was a moment where like we were kind of in a crunch and I sort of knew I wanted some elements from Rhiannon and I wanted some elements from Ray. Um, and I went to both of them because they're both like pretty, like Ray's in the roots and Rhiannon's, you'll see, <laughs> she's, she's a, she's, you know, she's got her, she's amazing. Um, and I was like, or, and I did, and like everyone was like, Margaret, you can't ask both of them to be composers. They're gonna say no, and they both said yes. They both <laughs> like watched the film and were like yes. And I was like, thank you. Like, 
Um, I just thought like there's someone helping me from somewhere else because I because I knew that like also with the time that we had, it was too much work for one person. So like they both they both were like, you know, just were egoless and we're like, we will wow. contribute whatever we can. It was pretty impressive. It's you have a lot of moving pieces in your work. Um, you're very thoughtful about all the, the elements. And from, again, something that you've been working on for 16 years. How do you as you're in the middle of it? like say, I don't know, five years ago, how are you sorting all the information you've taken in and keeping it organized? Do you have a system? Do you do you use handwritten notes? I meditate. Because um, I think if you're not centered, um, I mean, I don't always meditate. I go in and out of that practice. But I think like you have to maintain some kind of stillness within yourself because it's really overwhelming. Um, and you have to sort of filter out people that are distracting um, who are taking your energy um, and you know, you have to have a lot of silence around you and people that are going to hold you up and not tear you down. Because if you, I mean, I think that's why I'm sort of really happy. I'm not in a fear place anymore, you know, because like, um, yeah, during this is gonna, this is probably maybe too heady, but during the process, um, I was making another TV show kind of in the middle of all this because I just, I sort of needed more money. Um, and also I was approached by something that was sort of hard for me to say no to. I was super interested in it. And, um, and it was real. I thought the timing was going to be okay that I could like go do it. But then we sort of found the Clotilda right when that project was shooting. Wow. Yeah. And I had to like, and I've never been that anxious in my life. It was like all the fear stuff came back and I had to go on like antidepressants for, for like years, you know, at that point, I just got off of them. Um, and I realized, like, that you might not use any of this, but it is related to the mental question. health is a big deal for me. So, like, I love, okay. I appreciate you sharing this story. I th- no, it's a very thing. I think I try to talk about it an- regularly throughout the episodes, but no. So, please. Oh, okay, okay, good. I don't, I didn't know. So, um, I realized, like, I'd been living in like this weird fight or flight thing, like my whole life, and not really known it, like, because like once I started taking the antidepressants, I realized, well, actually, it's anxiety. And because when that went away, it like freed up, freed up this part of my brain that I didn't even know you could have access to. That's like a calmer place that you can live in that I just didn't even know was there. You know, it was like Mm -hmm. amazing. And now I'm off the antidepressants. I think I just sort of had to know that it was you could reach that, you know, that it was even like a place. Does that make sense? 100 percent. No, yeah. 100%. Yeah, I think that until you know it's there, you don't know you don't know how to get to it if you don't even know it exists. Like your conscious needs to know that it's available. Yeah. And then once you know it's available, oh, I know how to it sometimes it's a journey to get back to it and you fight to get there, but sometimes uh but at least you know where where to go. Yeah. And I think most creatives, I think a lot of creatives, I think so many so much of who, what a storyteller is is kind of you hope that by telling a story you can remove some of this anxiety. Yes that we we create to help us find calm and yeah. our nervous energy goes to writing to painting to like fidgeting yes. with things and yeah and i think storytellers especially in documentaries where there isn't a path where you have to really noodle on an ideal and sit with it for a long time yeah. become can become an obsession and become overly anxious we're like i can't crack this is it me and then the fear comes in and yeah it's a whole thing uh no i no i appreciate you sharing that i think that's important and i think it's it makes other people feel that oh i'm not i'm not different this is no i mean and also that's not to say the fear like is away permanently like it's just that like i'm not in it constantly yeah 
And I, I mean, for me personally, in my career, I used, I used that anxiety as a way to push myself. And I thought it was a cool thing. Yeah. And then as I got older, I'm like, oh my God, like I, uh, I wanted to feel that adrenaline of anxiety. If, and if I wasn't, I wasn't pushing myself hard enough is what I told myself. And I'm like, yeah. that's all insane. I could still do achieve those same things as a calm person. And so yeah. no, it's, it's been a journey for me as well. Uh, yeah. personally, when you, when you look back at the production, the post-production process of this, where I think oftentimes documentaries, the magic happens in post sometimes, uh, and you're really finding the story sometimes. It depends, yeah. obviously. But how long were you in post on this project? On and off, like throughout kind of, we would like edit for a while and take some time off then edit more. Yeah, it's definitely called an accounting, A-K-O-N-T-I-N-G. Okay, <laughs> or make a note of that. Okay, yeah, I need one of those. Thank you for hunting <laughs> that down for us. <laughs> um but yeah the, the you were asking about the post process mm-hmm. um we were in and on and off for years um but there was like um jeff richman was like the main post editor for a long time and then michael block who i was talking about before came on and really really like worked on it for like the last eight months and finished it with me um and yeah, I mean, um, I've worked with Jeff worked on Order of Myths as well. He was the finishing editor on that. And I think Mike um, was definitely like more than a finishing editor on this. Um, and I would say Jeff was too, to be honest. Like I edited a lot of Order of Myths along with Michael Taylor myself, but they both like, um, you know, so much of them is in both, like of, of Jeff is in both films. And Mike, um, Mike is definitely like, very poetic in his approach we like we like met at a cocktail party and he edited a short i did and he was a really new editor he's a musician you know and i really thought his work on the short was incredible um and he was so meticulous in a way that like i mean more so than me which is pretty insane because i'm pretty anal but um but i was like wow like he is really detailed and sometimes it drives me crazy but mostly i like it yeah (laughs) but uh but yeah so um i would say the post process was deeply emotional and and um and and also pretty open like we were pretty open to trying new things um i was very present in the edit but also sometimes just would give Mike time by himself um with Jeff it was during the height of COVID so I wasn't able to even I don't think I was even with him one day in the edit room but because we've worked together on so many projects it wasn't I think we've done four projects four long-term projects together that like um and some of them have been like tv tv things and like so shorter but like still like I we sort of share a brain so it's like we have a shorthand so it wasn't it wasn't too problematic that like um you know that he wasn't there and and also he could edit from home he has like he had like a a newborn during this so it's like um you know um sometimes there'd be like a lot of screaming going on in the background but um it worked you know yeah and when you talk about the detail uh, of being meticulous is this are we talking like push nudging something a frame or moving something a, a split second like how how no, in the process that as much as like a, lo- a lot about I think sound is something that is um really underappreciated and I think I mean my first film is a music film and I'm from a musical family and I sort of feel things inside myself that's I mean on on the Towns movie sometime 
if I couldn't explain to the editor, like, because I, I could hear it in my head, you mm -hmm. know, and I was like, just let me edit the sound part. Like, I, I, I can't explain it. Like, just give me the, give me the keyboard, you know. And with this film, I did not do that. Like, um, Mike and Jeff are both like, and I think now I'm better at explaining myself too. Right. That was that was how I learned how to make a movie. Hopefully, I've learned a few things in 17 years. But um, because Mike's a musician and Jeff is also really good with music, um, they both are like the 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 issue with Jeff some time as an editor is he picks temp track that's so good and so perfect like like the fact that like Rhiannon and Ray like could make something better than the temp track is kind of like I think that sounds obnoxious but it's like because Jeff was so good like sometimes he's like oh we'll never we're never gonna do better than this Philip Glass he just threw in like that's not gonna it fits so perfectly you know yeah. no um but sure enough you know wow. it works that's incredible and yeah I think that you know I think uh, musicians are incredible editors. I think they hear oh my God. and see things yeah. differently. And uh, you know, one of the notes I had here on after watching it was that Descendant is that it almost it's a music. I mean, for me, the music it was like a, mu a long music video. <laughs> like it, I love. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. There was obviously the powerful and social um, critique and the powerful social messaging and the and so, uh, review of critique of society. But like watching it and the visceral reaction I felt throughout it. Uh, just from like the creative tones it was it was it's stunning like it's comp like everything's there's not a thing out of place and so from like a creative standpoint it's just a, a beautiful piece of art as well as a important story thank you of course i watched an interview that uh where you mentioned uh i think it was on uh the order of myths that and you you kind of just in the middle of the, your answer to this in this interview you said like oh i was camera operator was doing this and i was doing sound <laughs> Do you do sound regularly? How many roles do you typically play? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I like, I know how to do everything, you know. Um, I know I, I don't shoot as much anymore because um, I don't know. Actually, it's funny. Like, I just, so Justin, who's like Zach and Justin both shot this, Zach Manuel and Justin's wife act. And Justin has been like shooting this experimental thing in New York, just going every day by himself to this one place and like shooting this thing. And he's been using this like tiny little camcorder that, captures 4k and like is really good and he's like margaret you gotta get one and i haven't i haven't shot in a long time you know because i i do like to do this thing where i'm very like connected to the person that i'm in so i can be like mm -hmm. so fully present i don't like to be behind a camera because i don't think i can be fully present it's like a connection thing and um but i do miss it like i came up as a dp i i like when, well i mean i didn't come up i didn't like shoot professionally ever as a dp really but in film school i was on the dp track and i, I think like um yeah that was like sort of i always saw things rather than could talk about them and so um you know i missed that and so i just bought this cam i mean it's on back order so it's like this special little and he sent me all these images he shot on it and it's just like i can because i shot some of the film but i didn't give myself a credit because most of my shots are like out of focus and terrible and i was like i don't want to take away from like the actual dps of this movie right <laughs> you know i was just sort of like sometimes i wanted to shoot and that would just be b cam or whatever or i would like set up the second camera if we had two cameras and be the second shooter but i am not the cinematographer you know but I do kind of want to like go back into that with sound. It was more like necessity. Like I don't really like doing sound, but sometimes if you're in a situation where someone's really nervous or you feel for whatever reason that um, 
you're going to gain something from being just two people or just one person, that's when it's really good to know how to do everything because you can just be like, okay, I'll just shoot it, you know? Because mm-hmm. most people, like, sometimes you have to pivot. You have to be able, like, sometimes your crew is gigantic and other times it's just you. Like, you have to know when to grow and when to, and just like you have to know what to wear to the interview. You have to know, like, how to make people feel comfortable or sometimes uncomfortable, you know? So it's always, like, a process of, of like adapting to what the film tells you it is, you know? Yeah. As someone you reach out to to be a part a partner in this project, what was it about Questlove that you maybe admired or something that you thought he was a good fit? I mean, I reached out to him because he was a descendant, you know? He's from, he's Joycelyn's cousin. Um, also, like, I mean, I obviously know his work and, you know, I interviewed him I did a Q&A with him for Summer of Soul, like, I guess now, like, a year and a half ago. And that's how I met him. Mm. Um, so he, that's when, that's sort of when he came on, like, no, it was longer than that ago. I can't remember. But he, like, I brought him on to the project when I, I didn't, I knew that, like, he's a celebrity. So I had, like, one shot. And I could have reached out to him earlier. But, and I'd been talking to his manager but like not we never sent any footage you know because I was afraid he would say no so I waited till like I was like oh I I feel like we're in a spot where he'll probably say yes you know and mm-hmm. he did um his team came on and it wasn't just him it's also Black Thought and Sean his manager and okay. Sarah Thelman, who runs the company but but he Amir has been so involved like much more so than i thought he would be like 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 he gave notes and he hooked us up with ray and you know um before we finished the film but then the way he's been involved like after with the impact and coming to africa town and like bringing his whole family and like you know being on text threads with the community and me like i he it's i'm like he's really in it with us and I think I don't know. I I wasn't expecting the level of passion he would bring to it, but it's his family. Like if you read what he's, t- I mean, if he if he feels it so deeply, and um, and it makes sense. It's his it's his long lost family, so he's learning about his family, and I think, you know, um, that sort of, I don't really know what to say about it. I mean, it's been really powerful. I uh, love to hear it. I've got chills. Uh, I love hearing that. Uh, I love the the thoughtfulness that he he brings to it that's really beautiful oh my god yeah i don't know if you've watched any of the q a's he's done but like he is it's he it's very his words are very powerful around this yeah and uh i can see why the, the connection the connective tissue there's beautiful yeah when you look back at this project what was your biggest challenge um i think my whiteness was the biggest challenge because um i i like you know Um, When I realized at a certain point, like, oh, my God, like, I thought this was a story kind of just like I I heard Stanley Nelson speak like years ago. And he was talking about how white people, there's this history and documentary of white people telling black stories and like and like white people should tell stories about whiteness. And I and in a way like that is part of what sort of wanted me to tell the story because I thought I had access to like insights about whiteness in the South. But of Mm. course, obviously that's not what the story ended up being but that's like I was very inspired when he said that I was like okay well now I know what my work is you know 
And um, but then you have to listen to what a film is. And the film, the white people didn't want to talk to me. The black stories that were passed down over 160 years were they kind of crowded everything else out like they were these were like master storytellers and to not acknowledge the power of their message and their truth would be like I wouldn't be a, that it just wasn't it was that was not where the story should it, it was clear that was the story you know at a certain point and so um you know I was already working with Kern Jackson I he'd been embedded in the community for 25 years since he wrote his like dissertation in grad school and um and he he's the one who shot all the videos you see in the film or a lot of them that are sort of in the tradition of Zora Neale Hurston. I mean, he basically went to grad school studying the fieldwork of Zora Neale Hurston. And he's very much in that tradition. But then S.E. Chambers, who was a friend of mine that I knew first as as a writer, we met at a, col a writing colony, but she was also like an exec at BT for years, an exec at Nickelodeon, like produced a bunch of docs. And so as friends, we started talking about like, you know, not just about my whiteness, but just about the story of the Clotilda. And I was just, we would meet for coffee or drinks and I would tell her. And then she sort of started like unofficially, she's, she's, a, she's black. And she started, um, we, we started just like talking about it. And at a certain point I was like, I should bring Essie on as a producer. Like she's basically producing already, you know, and Kyle Martin, who's my longtime producer, I went to him and I was like, I want to introduce you to this woman. Like she's a good friend of mine. And, you know, I think she she's she is a producer. I think we should bring her on like she's sort of helping me with my blind spots. Um, and also, you know, we were such good friends that there was like we kind of made a pact that like we would be like brutally honest with each other, even if it was painful. And, you know, most of the time it wasn't, but sometimes it was. And there were definitely things as a white person that I missed that were that the film just wouldn't have been as powerful it would have been more for the white gaze than for everybody if I had just hmm. been like, oh, I don't need any help. I'm I'm an auteur, you know, right. like yeah. I, for this one, like I was like, oh, I just to, got to be humble to the story. You know, you got to be humble to like what your blind spots are. And um, I tried, you know, I tried to be humble. That's really incredible. When you look at this journey that you've been on, what advice would you give yourself? And you kind of said it early on about the fear side. So I'm curious, I was just making, confirming that your your first answer was accurate because yeah. I have the second question. Is if you went back to your your younger self, would that be the, the advice you would give? Is Yeah. Well, I mean, I think like lean into curiosity more and lessen the fear. Like, well, maybe why are you afraid? Like, like just go deeper. Like always go deeper. Like always. I mean, I sound like, I don't know. Um, it, I, I feel like I am not talking in a, a practical way on the sort of like bullet points, but it is a practical way, really, because it's like if you interrogate yourself and your feelings um, and like, you know, operate from a place of like calming the mind down to think about where if I'm in a place of stillness, like what what do I hear rather than like if I'm in a place of anxiety I'm just going to do the impulsive thing like that sort of what I would tell myself is to try to find the stillness before reacting I love it pull quote found for the interview <laughs> I love that so much <laughs> um two last questions what makes a good story um well I wanted to say one more thing about yeah. that like to kind of acknowledge a teacher Lee Daniel who is is was Rick Linklater's like first DP and who shot Be Here to Love Me the Towns movie and I mean, I started that movie when I was in 
school still. And I was a very impatient person. And he was always like, you got to just wait for the shot. You got to just wait for it to happen. Wait for it to unfold in front of you. And I mean, yeah, it's just sort of more like, wait, you have to be patient. You have to be patient. Um, and sometimes, sometimes things happen quick. And I'm kind of an adrenaline kind of person just naturally. So for me, the impulse is never to slow down. You know, it's always a fight to slow down. But like, I think that's the place that's the most rewarding is when you do like you notice things you see things and you don't see them if you're going at warp speed you know mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah that's uh the best advice i think uh one can have is to be patient um yeah i wrote a no joke five days ago a whole uh, thought piece around being patient wow um, yeah cool. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, yeah, and time. I'm fascinated. When you said earlier talking about memory, I've been fascinated with memory and time for most of my career. And, really? Uh, yeah, I'm so yeah, and I roll mind into consciousness, and but and then how that reflects against time because I think time is the thing that hurdles most or hinders most people in modern society is that we're constantly putting ourselves up against an imaginary force that doesn't exist. And patience. I mean, the moment you remove time all you have is patience right so yeah that's yeah. so cool um yeah so what, what what makes a good story what makes a good story i have no idea um i don't think there's like one common thing that makes a good story i i that that, that question is unanswerable sorry i love it and i think that's the best answer to have <laughs> by the way you know so uh while doing my research i did discover uh be here to love me yeah, your well, town's Van Sant doc. Uh, and I ordered the DVD uh, on Saturday. Oh, you could find a DVD? I found a DVD going for $55. Oh. So just so oh. you know, I mean, there's a premium. Well, you're about to re-release it. That's why oh. it's not in release right now. Oscilloscope's about to re-release it. It's going to be in theaters. No way. Well, I'm so excited. Yeah. So uh, I became a, um, probably like three or four years, probably five years ago now, I became obsessed with town's Van Sant. And he oh, yeah. became... Somebody asked me six months ago, who's my favorite storyteller? And I said, Townsend's. And I said, oh, wow. Yeah. And I've always been drawn to singer songwriters because I think that there's something, I think they're very raw and honest uh, yeah. storytellers. And town story is obviously very difficult and tragic. And yeah. um, I was curious, what did uh, now, as you, we started the conversation, you tell me about your dad. It makes sense. That by, I was like, how did Towns, was there an influence there? Was that, is that what kind of, how did you, how did Towns get onto your radar? So um, when I was in school, one of my, I lived in, so I moved into, pa Pavement moved out and we moved into this loft in Williamsburg and their manager was this guy, um, Sam Brumbaugh. And he lived, I'm forgetting the name of the drummer, but he like, it was like three of us. It was like this very open loft. And, um, and Sam like played me a Towns record and I hadn't heard him growing up. Like my dad had never, my dad knew who Towns was, but like, um, hmm. my mom threw out my dad's one time my dad went on a fishing trip and my dad had a literal room that all it was, was records. Like it was like the room outside of the studio and you would pull out these drawers and it was just record. I mean, thousands of records, first editions of Bob Dylan, like insanity. And um, and and that happened like when I was in high school or before. And like I think like six months later when I was in college, I was like, Dad. And and it all it all it was all gone. It was all the salvation. Wow. Arm, you know? And because my mom is always like trying to downsize and like minim be minimal and like. My dad is like a hoarder. So oh. it's like this constant battle. 
But that's like the one thing I'm like, really, you threw out the fucking first editions? Like, yeah. I think you just kept like a few Bob Dylans and some Odetta and like Chris Christie. And I was like, oh my God, like who knows what was gone. And when I was in high school, I was definitely more into like alternative, like punk. Like I didn't know what was there. Like I was just like, that's like lame, you know? Really? Um, so, um, so Sam played me waiting around to die. And I was just like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, we're just like sitting in this loft with no heat. And he was playing that song. And I was very young. And I had this thought of like, because my dad had he was he was a sing he was a songwriter. And, you know, um, and then there's a whole story there. But of how that came to happen, because it's very unlikely. Um, and uh, he was a songwriter. And but he my mom always wanted to stay in Alabama because she was very close to her grandmother who, and she wanted me to know my great grandmother. So we never, my, we never moved to Nashville. We never moved to LA. Like, and there were lots of opportunities for my dad to do that, but he, and he paid a price and like what jobs he could get, you know? And, he, and we had a solid family life growing up because of that. And a lot of his partners did not. And there was a lot of like drug over, you know, I mean, who knows, yeah. who knows what would have happened, you know? But um, but like, I think um, in my mind, it's kind of a questioning artistic younger person. I was like, do you have to live that way to be an artist, to be as great as towns? Do you have to like, you know, just like hit the road, not really be tied to anyone? Do you have to do that? And, 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 and you know, the other thing, like he was an alcoholic and and I guess like now, many years later, I see that as sort of the more. Um, and, and, you know, not ever been an alcoholic myself, but definitely being alcoholic adjacent, let's say, like, I think that's the most, that's the most key thing. It's not about like, again, it's like, I think the art flows more freely, usually when you're in a flow state and not blocked by something like alcoholism or fear or exhaustion or whatever, you know? Yeah. Um, so like, but I thought as a younger person, that was like the question of that movie, like what, what's the right state to be in to be an artist, you know? And I think um, there's been like every year I have like a different revelation about that. But that film was the beginning of that exploration. Like, well, shit, like, and it's also this male myth of like, you know, artistic genius that comes with torture, which is such fucking horse shit. I couldn't, mm -hmm. I, it makes me angry. Um, because I think there is this cult of the boy genius that we see today in documentary, in every kind of endeavor, it's like, it's always these like men that like, you know, there's there's a there's a myth there that's somehow rooted in our subconscious or something. But it's 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 not to me where the flow comes from. No, no. I think you're totally right. Um, yeah, the uh, I very into records and to hear that these these archives are no longer in your family's possession is tragic. tragic. Um, I. Uh, during COVID, one of my projects I love, I've been rec collecting records for 20 years and I uh, built a hi-fi system, like a listening room in this house in Tulsa. Oh my God, amazing. It's amazing. And one of the things yeah. I do regularly is I'll put on um, the town's, like that live recording, 1975 from Austin. Old Quarter. Yeah. Old Quarter's and, Houston. I, I, actually, uh, yeah, Old Quarter's actually not Houston. It's, um, fuck, where's the Old Quarter? Um, it's in Galveston. The Old oh, is it really? Okay. Yeah, you gotta go to you've gotta go to the old quarter. I have to. I have to. 
I mean, I'm seriously like I'm telling you, this is a pilgrimage. Will not regret. Gonna go. I, I promise you, I will do this. The oh Rex, I sent you. <laughs> tell Rex. I'm, I'm okay. Hold on. I need to make that note of that Rex. But Rex in it, tell. you know, one of the things that like, and it's obviously one of his most commercial songs, but Poncho and Lefty, mm-hmm. and that song I listened to, and what I found fascinating as him as an artist, and that song is one of my favorite songs of all time. Wow. Hearing it live is so different than the, the studio recording. Oh my of god! It. I know the studio. Yeah, <laughs> so, a lot but of the studio stuff of Towns is like tragically bad. Like way too many flutes. Like yeah, not it. But when you hear it live, you can hear him coming through the microphone. You can hear the pain in his voice. You, he's not wow. a good singer, and it's and yeah. it's beautiful. It wouldn't be. I don't think it'd be his good if he was like this. You know, great, incredible vocalist. Yeah. But, and there's something like that juxtaposition of the guitar and his like his old timey uh, swagger. I guess uh, that I, just mm-hmm. that song crushes my soul. <laughs> like I don't know what it is. I just love it. But I'll put on the hi-fi system, turn off all the lights, and just listen to it. And you can hear oh, every God. finger hit the you know the chord or whatever. Yeah. It, it's so beautiful oh okay you got to go i have one question before you leave though um what is your comfort food when you're having a bad day is what i ask every guest at the end of the podcast when you're having a bad day what's the one meal that comes to mind that could make it a little bit better oh my god i mean i have a sort of sideways answer um i've been on the road so much lately and i went home for christmas to see my folks and my brother and um and I haven't been able to cook in like months, nothing. And so I cooked every meal for everybody for the whole time I was there. My mom was so shocked. <laughs> let's just say I'm not known as in the family as a cook at all. People make fun of me. But like I got the that New York Times app and like I had bookmarked all these things on the road that I wanted to cook, that I wanted to try. Because like there was something about making food for other people and also like um this sort of little piece of art you could make that you could do it quickly and it gives people joy and I was like so really like my comfort food is like cooking for other people I suddenly found out I didn't know that until Christmas interesting what was your of of that of that experiment I guess what was your favorite dish that came out of it I well my dad can't um he can't he's like allergic to milk so I made I like I found this recipe actually not from the New York Times from this other like website about it was like this ratatouille recipe that like I used to bake vegan cheese which I'm sure is gross and processed but my dad could eat it and I made this vegan ratatouille and my parents just went crazy over it like they they like every I there my mom was like harassing me to send her the recipe and I couldn't find it I couldn't figure out where I'd gotten it for a really and then I was like oh I found it I was so happy so I think that was my biggest hit was the vegan ratatouille. <laughs> I love it. That's incredible. Uh, you know, it's funny. I've, I've the, again, like the two things I'm personally fascinated by, uh, instruments, music and food and how it's all moved along through our, the world through whether it's colonization or forced migration or whatever it is. And I have found that directors uh, often are become obsessed with food at some point in their careers really yeah and i think it's because like uh it's something about the they i think i don't know whether they discover the the storytelling aspect of food and how it can impact a room and how it can impact a space yes that there's something really powerful about presenting a story through something that we can all enjoy and have a conversation around well you've seen high on the hog right like i mentioned Stephen satterfield earlier but he like he like saw descendant and and like pitched doing a series with miss bernetta it's so Oh, good you have to check it out on youtube it's like he came yeah. um 
I don't know. It's just really fun to see her. Like she got her makeup done by this like great makeup artist and she was feeling like real pretty and, you know, and she's very bossy and it was just really fun to watch her boss Steven around instead of me, you know, so that was cool. I love that. And before I could actually watch this and before I was out, I uh, in the town had heard about this, the the series of this food because everyone like, again, a food's a very big deal to me. Yeah. Like, You're going to have to watch this thing. It's going to come out in, in alongside it as a companion piece. And I'm like, I cannot wait to watch it. And I did. And they're incredible. So uh, it's, it's amazing. Like, I feel like Descendant isn't it's it's a I don't know. It's bigger than a documentary. It's it, it, it has it's I don't know, part of folklore. It's part, part of, of mythology. Story. Yeah, no, part of a much larger. I wouldn't say mythology because the story is true. Oh, right. Correct. Yes. But like, uh, but it is like part of a folkloric tradition, certainly. But whenever people say mythology, I always want to say that's what white people say about the Clotilda, oh, but right. everyone in the black community knew that it was really a ship. Yeah. You know, there's a fucking log at the museum. Like there was a ship. Like there's a log in the genealogy genealogy museum in Mobile, Alabama, and people were still denying that even though there's a captain's log there. Well, it could have been forged. It's like it's like um yeah, it could have been forged, but I don't know. I mean, when you think about like who got to tell the story in 1860 when it was written, let's right. talk about Ford jury let's talk about like who had control of the narrative and the that's what makes oral history like so powerful you know yeah and i think that's what is such a great uh, conversation i know documentaries are the best tool is to start a conversation and to your point yeah. that even when you start the conversation saying how in, in mobile uh that the white families are now talking about it because it's it's not mythology it's it's fact it's fact here's the here's a comprehensive uh, some of that's taken all the stories, put them into one thing and let's have a conversation around it. And, yeah. and so incredible work. Um, uh, what do you want people to, f when they watch it, what do you hope that they walk away with? I hope they walk away with, um, like, first of all, inspiration of the resilience of this community and like thinking about their own ancestors and the stories that are either painful or that they're proud of. And, um, you know, I mean, the Obamas came on after Sundance and um, Michelle Obama started this thing last week called the Descendant Challenge, along with Participant, who's the, the studio I made the film with. And they also always do an impact campaign, which I, with every film, which is why I wanted to work with them. But um, and I don't know if you if you if, if you follow the hashtag Descendant Challenge on Instagram or Facebook or, you know, any social channel you'll see like these people posting stories of their family. And like, if you ever want to lift yourself out of a bad mood and be inspired, like follow this hashtag, but yeah. seriously, follow yeah. the hashtag. I mean, it's, it's, I've been, you know, um, it does help me when I'm feeling down to like, look at like these stories of like what people have to go through and how they, how they prevail. And, and I think um, I also want people when they watch the film to be inspired to act. Like one thing Anderson Flynn says in the movie is like, Sometimes, you know, art can be perceived as a form of entertainment, but what do you do when you leave? And he says this in front of EJI, which is like the lynching memorial in, in, um, in Montgomery, which is a very powerful site of a lot of pain, but it's also very, you know, what do you do with this? Now that you have this new information, now that your worldview has shifted, what do you do now? And I think my challenge to people is like, how are you going to act to make the world a better place? Like now that you know that history... Um, in a real way, how history has been silenced. Like, how will this? And it can be little ways that you act. Like, but it, it. I just hope people like walk away with some kind of brain shift. I love it. What a way to go out on that episode. Thank you so much. 
Margaret. That's uh, a really fun conversation. <laughs> thank you. I really, uh, and I know that you have a lot going on right now, so I was, I'm so happy we're able to do this. Uh, it was such a pleasure to get to chat with you a little bit, and um, I wish you the most success uh, over this campaign and uh, as, again, this absolute really world. Conversation. You're a really good interviewer, and um, you asked a lot of, I mean, I've been asked a lot of questions, and um, and these are these are really, like, kind of, it was, like, it was fun to kind of, like, riff off of your questions. Well, good. I'm so glad that, that we could have that conversation. And thank you for making the time to do this. It's, it really means sure. a lot. Time's really pre precious to all of us. So thank you so yeah. much. And uh, I can't wait to keep in touch when I go down to Galveston and check out. Oh, you have to let me know. Deal. What a delight. Thoroughly enjoyed that conversation. I hope you did as well. But I have a few notes before we get out of here. Uh, one of my favorite moments from this conversation was actually when Margaret called me out for using the word mythology. In my mind, in real time, I was thinking of stories told through oral history, which is simply just folklore. Mythology, on the other hand, is a story, one concerning the history of people or explaining some other natural or social phenomenon, typically involving supernatural beings or events. And here's the kicker. They're widely held, but false in belief or idea. The more you know, I'm so grateful. Also, the instrument that we were discussing is the Akon Ting. Napoleon Williams, who plays the instrument in the film, makes them himself. I'll put a link to his Instagram uh, in the show notes. You got to see them. They're beautiful. Margaret references The Descendant Cookout, a short series on YouTube by Participant Media and Stephen Satterfield. Stephen sits down with activists, thought leaders, and subjects of the documentary Descendant to explore how food impacts community, social justice, and cultural legacies. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. Quick note about Participant Media. They do a social impact campaign with all their films. One of the many reasons we love them. Such a thoughtful and purpose-driven production company. And that's a wrap. Thank you for checking out our latest episode. And please go watch Descendant. It's streaming on Netflix right now. You can check out our Instagram at Pod for the latest news. And don't forget, we will have some live events planned for the summer. So stay tuned. Finally, the best way you can support the Smith Society podcast is to rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow your dreams no matter where they take you.